Thank you for listening to the teaching podcast of Muncie First Church. If you would like to know more about us, go to MuncieFirstChurch.com. Or if you would like to support a ministry, go to the giving page, MuncieFirstChurch.com slash give. Well, let's jump into the teaching from this last week. Well, good morning. Glad to be here with you. Man, that was powerful worship time this morning. And uh, man, I feel so blessed to get to sit and be a part of that and cheer for God in the middle of all that and, and just sing and praise God with you. And uh, that's such a, such a neat thing. Glad that you're all here. Thank you for coming out. I know it's Labor Day and a lot of things you could be doing and you chose to be here today. And I thank God for that. What I'm most thankful for today is that uh, God is here with us today. He chose to be here with us today. And I just give him praise for that this morning. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. And we're going to read from there in just a little bit here. And uh, we'll share some things from that. We're kind of stepping out of our uh, normal, um, the normal series that I've been working on, the core series. And we're going to kind of do something a little bit different today. I just wanted to share this. I feel like uh, God, gave, God laid this on my heart. And, and I uh, just feel like it's very pertinent to where we're at in the world today. And I want to share with you this this morning. Um, at the end of the 18th century and then on down through the 19th century, the great industrial revolution began in our country and in England and in the Western world. It was fueled by coal and, and the big factories began to manufacture steel and steel was turned to things like machines and buildings and, and people moved from the farms and the cities to go to work. And steel mills and factories sprung up and construction of great cities began to take place and and everything um, that had one time been produced at home began to be produced in mass. And uh, everything from clothes and shoes to farm machinery and cars suddenly were, were being produced. And what amounted to really, in, in many ways, a modern enslavement of large groups of people began to happen. Because men and women, even children, were employed and expected to work 16 hours a day, six days a week. They were just called in and said, go to work. And, and they were... Uh, they went to work and, and they were enslaved by that. And then they worked for a meager amount. And because of the fact that they were working for such a meager amount, a lot of them ended up in places to live that just were unfit to live in and oftentimes owned by the industrialists who, were, uh, who they worked for. And, and they took the money back to cause as, as rent. In England, in the late 1700s, children as young as six years old were forced to go to work in the coal mines. Um, they were forced to go in and labor for sometimes 10, 15 hours a day. And they would work six days a week and they would work those poor children until they couldn't work anymore. And then they'd just discard them, toss them on the heap. Money and wealth became the most important thing. It was a big time of greed. You know, the idea of Sunday school that we participate in today literally began as that, a school on Sunday. Not to teach people about Jesus, just to give those kids any kind of hope and education that they could, because that was the only day that was open for them to come in and to be a part. And that's where our modern Sunday school comes from. People were objectified and identified as the poor and the working class, and that was their lot in life and no hope of improvement. In England, if you were a part of that class, you couldn't even go to church, because in church during that time, you bought a pew and you couldn't afford a pew. You just didn't go. And that's what drove John Wesley out of the cathedrals of Oxford and drove him into the open and into the, uh, uh, out to the coal mines, to the mouths and the openings of the coal mines where he would preach to the miners as they would come out of those places. 
and out of that condition. These kind of conditions finally led to uh, the formation of labor unions, which were formed to stand up for the poor and the disenfranchised. And these unions by force, and get me clear, these unions, and hear that by force, demanded that the owners treat their workers better. Better pay, better hours, better conditions. And they did it by force. I hope you hear me on that. Not by the love or the recognition of the humanity of the workforce. They did it by force. And what is taken by force has to be maintained by force. And therefore, the relationship between ownership and the employee force in most enterprises has remained adversarial. Selfishness and self-centeredness has led to abuse, the objectification and the using of others since the very beginning of time. Jesus dealt with this issue long before America or England labor force unions formed out of necessity. And Jesus gives us a much better way to live. And it's that that I want to talk about today, how we are to live in relationship to others all around us, no matter what that relationship is. John chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus is quoted as saying this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Now, if you've heard me say that once, you've heard me say it a thousand times recently, and it's because that is the theme of my whole heart, because I believe that's the one that sums it all up. Love each other as I have loved you. Paul writes about it in Ephesians chapter 5. He said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And this is the scripture I had you turn to. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body. They started in verse 22. I, I'm sorry, I should have told you that. Um, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, and after all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their bodies just as Christ does the church. And children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. And obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, there is no favoritism with him. Let me pray together with you right now. Father, as we begin this message and, and as we look into your word, I pray that you will be here this morning. Lord, I pray that the words that I say won't be heard, but what you have to say will be heard. I pray, God, that you will speak into hearts and lives of people, that our hearts will be stirred and changed, and that we will learn to love each other as you have loved us. Because, Lord, that's your command to us, and that's the most important thing that we're ever going to do. I love you, and I praise you, and I believe that right now, and I just ask that your hand will be upon us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Paul deals with loving each other in this very personal way. And then right after he does this, over in the book of Philemon, 
which is just before the book of Hebrews, he writes a letter that I think is the most personal of all the letters in the, in the New Testament. And in this letter, Paul writes a very personal note to a man named Philemon, who he urges, who is his friend and whom he urges to accept back uh, a runaway slave that, he, uh, that Paul knows. And he tells him, don't accept him back as a slave, but invite him to come back as a brother. Invite him to come back as a brother, not a slave. And I think uh, more than ever before, we need to look at the problem of how we relate and identify others and what we need to, and, and, and we need to deal with it because it covers a variety of issues that really speak to us today. It speaks to the things that are going on in our world today. In America today, as you well know, we're dealing with a lot of things. Greed is a big issue. Racism is a big issue. Abortion is a huge issue. Gender equality is a huge issue. Sexual, sexual exploitation is a huge issue. So let me start by saying this. Anytime you make objects out of any group in order to control them, you have broken the command of Christ to love them. You are not loving them when you make them into objects. You can't control someone and love them. It's impossible to do that. And when we turn one group of people into objects to use or to eliminate because uh, of who they are, it becomes much easier to objectify or to turn another group into just objects. So Paul begins to deal with this subject and this problem back in chapter 5. As I read to you, he's talking, first of all, to husbands and wives and about how they treat each other. And this is very important in his day because you have to keep in mind the tenor of the day, the day he lived in, the day that Paul was writing this to you in, is not exactly like today. It is more male-dominated by far than anything you'll see in the world today. It is women were identified as objects only, not as human beings, but as objects only to possess and to control. Kids were naturally disenfranchised and objectified. People were used as slaves to meet needs of other people who could control them. The problem we have today begins in the heart just like it did then. There's a problem at that point. As it, it, there's a heart issue that's at stake here. And here's the deal, I believe, if we get the heart relationship dealt with, I think all the other stuff will begin to fall into place. Okay? The issue of being dealt with is not really slave, master, husband, wife, or parents and children. The problem is this. It's self-centeredness. It's the objectifying of. It's the identifying and using of a group of people, making them less than human in order to satisfy my needs. See, slaves were not people in the South in the pre-Civil War days. They, they weren't people. They were, they were objects to be used. They were objects to be owned. They were objects to be controlled. They had to be reduced to something less than people to do to them what was being done to them. Unborn babies today are not people. You cannot kill babies, but you can abort fetuses. So we objectify them and make them something other than people and say they're not really people so that we can do to them what we're doing to them today. And when you objectify a group of people and make yourself superior over them, then you can easily begin to do it to another. I want to talk to you about selfishness because it doesn't take much effort. It doesn't take much study of history. It doesn't take too much digging around in people's lives today. You don't have to watch TV very much. You don't have to sit and listen to too many conversations to realize that most people are living to satisfy one person. And that's their self. 
We live in a very narcissistic society and culture. I, I've even noticed this, maybe you haven't noticed this one yet, that even people who are always out trying to please everyone else, they seem like all they want to do is go out and please everyone around them, are making everyone happy because it makes their world better. They're doing it for themselves, to make their world peaceful, to satisfy themselves. The other person's well-being isn't really even in the equation. And the church isn't exempt from this. I want to tell you something today. I believe in the church today, we are very self-centered and very narcissistic. And I'll tell you why I believe that. Because I hear things like, I don't like that kind of music. I don't like small groups. I don't want to quit and break. I don't like it. I want more comfort with my Sunday school than this. I don't want to get chairs. I like pews. I don't like having coffee in the church. And I want you to notice something because it goes on and on. And I've only given you a, a smattering of what I hear. Did you notice the subject in those sentences? I, 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 I. It's all about me. And that's how we live our lives. I don't. I want. I can't. I, 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 I. See, the world, let's just face it, the world is about us. And man, am I going to make sure I'm comfortable. And if I need to use other people to make myself happy and comfortable, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. See, Jesus knew that humans are born selfish and self-centered, and he grasped the reality that sin is a self-seeking enterprise. It really is. Murder, lying, stealing, adultery, anger, and hate are all caused by self-centeredness, by us choosing ourselves over another person. There are things, events, circumstances that come out of focusing on ourselves and not getting what we want, so we're going to force it to happen. James, Jesus' brother, said it so well when he asked this question in his letter that he wrote. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires? Desires that battle within you. You want something, but don't get your way. You kill and covet because you cannot have what you want. That just speaks to the whole issue. Jesus is offering to us a remedy for this life of hate and killing and self-centeredness. Jesus is saying, instead of hating and killing each other, love each other as I've loved you. In other words, start by recognizing the other person's humanity. Every person in here is equal. You're all humans. You should be treated that way. Every one of you here are created in the image of God. Granted, every one of you, that image has been tarnished and smeared and broken, and you struggle with that. But every one of you here, no matter where you've come from, what you've done, what you haven't done, were created and made in the image of God. Every one of us. In Ephesians, Paul reminds us of that when he tells us this, be imitators of God and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. See, love here is not a feeling. I don't always like to be around everybody. I, I, I don't have warm, fuzzy feelings all the time in my life, all the time, sometimes, but not all the time, probably less than others, more than some, but I don't have those feelings all the time. But love is not a feeling. It's a decision to act in a certain way towards people. Even when they don't act that way towards me. It's a choice I make. 
And Paul gives specific direction on how to do that in our everyday relationship. And so he starts in by talking to us about marriage because marriage in those days was a very difficult proposition for women. A very, very difficult. Marriage in those days, wives had no real rights. They were objects. Men ruled, dominated, and controlled. They're women. Paul recognized the self-centeredness and the problem in that, so he began with asking women to do something. He said, accept your role. Most of you are sitting there going, what? He says, wives, submit to your husband as though you're submitting to the Lord. Someone has to break the cycle. And he said, before you start hating, start loving. Submit means to set aside your own desires, your own wishes. Make life about meeting your husband's needs instead. So whether you like it or not, as a follower of Christ, just do that. And I know that's not very 21st century. And a lot of you are sitting there going, well, there you go. But before you do that, let me ask you or tell you something else. Because Paul did something that is so incredible following this. He unleashed a whole new and radical concept on men in the church. So radical that I promise you, I promise you that when he taught this, there was scandal in the church. There were a lot of men who probably stood up and walked out and said, that Paul, he's a troublemaker. Look, he's not married. How does he know about marriage? And they'd have stormed out of the church, angry, throwing things and acting crazy because what he said was totally disruptive of the world they lived in. See, men used their women. Men used their women as objects for sex and childbearing and household labor. Love wasn't in the equation, but Paul said as a believer, husbands, love your wives. And that's radical. And again, he said, love her even if you don't feel like loving her. And that goes for today, too, guys. It was make a choice. Treat her, love her like she's God's daughter and God is your, son, is your father-in-law. Guys, put that one in your mind and think about it. You know, how many of you feared your father-in-law just a little bit when you met your wife? Anybody here? Yeah, you know. Your father-in-law's not that guy. Your father-in-law really is God. Think about what you're doing with your wife and what you've done to her and say, i got to answer to God for that someday. He's my father-in-law. You know, I mean, just saying, I have to think about it too. How do I do that? How do I love her? By dying for her. Quit using her. By dying here doesn't mean go lie down and die, get dead and get buried and collect her life insurance so she can have money. That's not what that means. What he's saying here is this, quit using her. Put your own rights aside. Die to yourself. Set aside your rights. Consider her needs and her desires. Recognize her humanity. Die to yourself. Make your wife's wishes come true. Quit being about you. Quit making life about you. Just as Christ loved us, his church, Christ laid down heaven for us he set aside everything that he had a right to and came to us and that's what paul's saying you have to do for your wife and it's scandalous mutual death to self both a husband and a wife laying down their rights and to themselves leads to great marriage here's the reason because when you die to yourself when you quit making it all about yourself and you begin to focus on the other person's rights and on the other person's needs and on the other person's feelings 
Guess what happens? You begin to have feelings for that person. It just works that way. So what Paul was teaching, I said, was scandalous. But Paul understood it was the only way to live out Jesus' command to love others as Jesus loved us. It was the only way in a marriage to make it work. And he goes on to deal with another difficult relationship following that, and that's the relationship between children and parents. Anybody here ever have a struggle with your kids? Anybody? Just me. Okay. If wives were objects to be used, children were a little bit less than that. They were not humans until about 13 if you were a male, and you never became a human as a female. You were just simply objects. Girls were used to trade for wealth. They had arranged marriages. A man would say, this is my daughter. She's quite beautiful. She's seven years old, and, she wants to, and I, need, I need a big dowry for her, you know, so I'll take three cows and, 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 uh, and a couple uh, yards of material, and we'll trade. And they literally traded their daughters for wealth, for money, for things. Paul's first level of correction and care goes to the subject who has been taking advantage of again and he says this children obey your parents in the middle of that that seems harsh he's saying submit do what you're being forced to do by their will over your right now in spite of all that's going on honor your father and your mother because if you do god notices and it will go well with you especially as children grow up and get older being obedient and submitting becomes more and more difficult we know that teenagers we see it all the time and and as they become teenagers, they struggle with always doing everything they're told. And, and, and you know, we lose less and less uh, the, uh, uh, the obedience that goes with being a, a child. And, and Paul says that submitting and honoring your parents carries a reward. It's the way of Christ in loving your parents as Christ has loved you. So see loving your dad and your mom as loving Jesus, teenagers. But then Paul addresses the parents. And by the way, this address is not just to men. It would have been more to men then than it is now because men controlled everything. But this is to all parents, not just to men. And he's talking to all of you. Do not exasperate your children. And that seems like, well, what does that mean exactly? What's this? Don't irritate and infuriate your children. Don't take advantage of your, of your children. Don't use your kids for your own pleasure or needs. Don't mistreat your child. Here's the next one. Don't coddle your child. Nothing will exasperate your child more these days than to let them grow up thinking they're the very center of the world because you have made them the center of the world. And then they go out and get a job and they're not the center of the world. And they're going, what in the world happened? Stop it. Quit making your kids the center of your world. They're not. But love them. Love them. See, most kids get frustrated with being ignored, feeling beneath, unimportant, unlistened to. How many of us haven't listened to our kids? I mean, they get frustrated with being used as an object. They hate feeling like they don't matter. And the reason for that is this, simply because they're not born to be your personal slave. They're not objects. They're people, God's creation. They're created in the image of God. And Paul was telling parents, elevate your children to human being level. Make them what they are. Make them people. They're not objects to be used. They're not someone to take out your frustrations on. They're not little slaves. They're not possessions to trade for wealth. And they're not little gods. They're people. Put them in their proper place. Treat them like non-people 
uh, uh, quit treating them like non-people who are yours to use. Paul teaches, train them up. How do you do that? Train them up. Instruct them in the way of the Lord. How? By loving them, pouring your life into them. Discipline, disciple them. Teach them to obey Christ. Teach them to love instead of use people. That's our jobs. So, that's two of the relationships that Paul dealt with. And then finally he comes to the one that, that is weird to us because we aren't slaves and we're not masters. And we go, well, this one doesn't apply. But it really does. It applies in a big way. So, I'm not a slave. I'm not a master. So look with me at verse 9. And Paul says this. He says that both slave and freeman are equals in the sight of Jesus. So Christ shows there's no favoritism to either one, slaves or freemen. His love for the rich, the poor, the free, and the slave is equal. There's not one person in here he loves more than another. I don't care what your position in life is. You're not better than anyone else. And why is that true? It's because all these people are children in his sight. You're his child, and he loves you. So we need to approach this whole relationship like this, as workers and supervisors, as owners of business and those who work for us in that kind of way and this matters see paul starts with slaves or workers he says obey your supervisor with respect and proper fear fear is not i'm scared of them but it's putting into context your place and theirs in this relationship understand that they have responsibilities and leadership that they have to exercise over you they can't be your best friend at work they can't let you do whatever you want there is consequences to things so how do we do that first you need to go to your supervisor and rehumanize them see a lot of us don't see our supervisors those people we work for we don't see them as human beings we see them as as taskmasters we see them as people who are holding way uh, too much control over my life we see them as as harsh we do not see them as human beings so that's the thing we have to do. First of all, we need to go to them and we need to rehumanize them. Your boss is a person who goes home every night to a family just like you do. Your boss has feelings. She has feelings and she fears just like you do. You employee, uh, you're a person, uh, your employer is a person who has dreams and aspirations just like you do. They're human beings with feelings. They're human beings with everything going on in their heart that goes on in yours. They're just like you. Yeah. A lot of you say, I don't believe that, but it's true. They're just like you. This boss has been given authority to lead, and so we should work with him to make the endeavor, the job, work best. That's our job, to help them, to help them create what it is we're creating, to, to do the things that we're doing, to be involved in that and to help with that to work, to make the job the best it can. In Paul's day, the situation was slave and servant. It was not uh, chattel slavery like we know in the South where you had ownership over a slave, but it was a, a person was worked for someone and they were obligated to work for them. It was more of a servant kind of thing. They performed their duties. They really weren't owned necessarily, but there was expectations and they were expected to stay and to work and, and they were in turn taken care of and fed, etc., it was a class system. It elevated some and, and diminished others. It was wrong. Paul, once again, appeals to those who are being taken advantage of first. Slaves obey, respect, doing it out of respect, all 
in on the job. And I would say workers, obey, respect, be all in on your job, serve, give yourself to the job like you're serving Jesus. Why? Because the reward for Christ when we live this way. Some good things begin to happen when we live this way. When our supervisor sees the way we're living, they may be attracted to Jesus. First of all, if you want to win somebody, acting in an antagonistic way towards them is not the way to start. They may be convicted of their wrongdoing, and because it's the command of Christ, that's the last part, because it's the command of Christ to love them this way, to to do what he's called you to. It's his command, love them. It didn't say love them if they're nice to you. It didn't say love them if they're a good boss. It just says love them. It doesn't say love them if you like them. It doesn't say love them if everything works out well in your job. It just says love them. Even when they're not lovable, you love them. That's your job. That's who you are. Supervisors, treat your workers as people. They're not objects to be used. Your bottom line is not money. Don't kid yourself into thinking it is. The money will come if you treat the employee right. The money will come if you're a good leader. The money will come if you do the right thing. But it's not about the money. It's about the people. It's about the human beings. Because you are a human being. They're not objects to be used. Honor them. Respect them. See them as individuals. Treat them like it was Jesus who was working for you. What would you say if Jesus was working for you? Would you treat them like you treat your employees? And even if they don't respect you, love them. Love them. Because that's the command. Jesus said, love each other as I have loved you. And he didn't say if they love you back after that. Even in this situation, love the other person like Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. So then in Philemon, I mentioned that earlier, Paul gets all personal about this and he's with a young slave named Onesimus and Paul loves Onesimus. He's come to understand him and know him and and he's a runaway slave and, and Paul has accepted him not just as a person but as a son. It's like this is the son he never had. He's humanized him. He's taken away slave status and given him human status. He's given him value. And he said, you're not only a a, a human being, but you're a child of God. And he sees him that way. Showing him his identity is not slave. But he is a child of God. Paul says that Onesimus has the very heart of uh, of Paul. He says, he has my heart. I love this guy. He's he's my guy. I I just, you know, I'm proud of him in every way. He has respect and he loves Philemon as well. and He loves him as Christ would and he does that and he shows him by doing something that's really hard for some of us to understand. But Paul has told Onesimus, you need to go back to Philemon, your master. But he's given him this letter to take with him. He said, take this letter with you. He's returning him back to his rightful place where it's possible that he will once again be objectified and dishonored as a slave. But Paul knows that he has to love Philemon and that this is the right thing to do. So that's what he's doing. He's doing the right thing even though it's difficult. And he's writing and he's urging the master Philemon to accept Onesimus for what he is, a fellow human being and a brother. And he's urging Philemon to break the chain of objectifying and using of others. He's saying, stop doing that. You too are under obligation to love this man. He is a human being. Love him. 
Paul understood that if we, the human race, are ever going to overcome the sin in this world, it will begin by each one of us individually choosing to overcome our selfishness and recognizing humanity in every person. We need to quit watching Fox News or CNN, whichever side you happen to feel most comfortable watching, and saying everybody out there needs to do this, that, and the other. And you need to go those days and take that time and go into your bedroom and get on your knees and say, God, help me to love others because it will not change until it changes in you. One person at a time, as we learn to love people as Christ loved us, this world will change. No other way. Yesterday, in Texas, once again, we saw people being shot and killed. Horrible. Mind-boggling. I don't normally mess with politics, but i got to tell you the truth on this. The only way that's going to get solved is not another law. It's a heart problem. It's a head problem. Until we start loving people and teaching our children to love others, and quit making our children the most important thing on earth and saying, oh, anything you want to do, honey, it's okay because you're my child. Until we wake up and realize that, we are never going to see healing and hope come back. The change will only happen as each of us individuals choose to overcome our selfishness and recognize the humanity in every person. And it will never be accomplished by new laws, and it won't begin by redistributing wealth, and it will not happen because we force the boss to listen to our demands, and it will not happen because I take charge and force my husband to listen to me. We will finally overcome sin and selfishness when we see all other people as God's sons, God's daughters, and when we begin to live out Christ's command about them to love each other. That one command changes everything in our lives. One command, love each other, changes everything. And yet it's absolutely impossible for you to live that out on your own. Because I am a selfish person on my own. I want you to do what I want. I want my way. In John chapter 14, Jesus tells the disciples that he's leaving but he says, as I'm leaving, he is, I will not leave you as orphans, but I am sending my Holy Spirit to be with you. In John 15, John gives him this command. He says, love each other after teaching them to stay connected to him. So people of God, hear me clearly on this. How do we change our world? First, we who believe in Jesus must remain connected to Jesus. We've got to quit this, oh, it doesn't matter if I go to church or not. It doesn't matter whether I stay connected. The less we go to church and stay connected to the body of Christ, the more we're going to see the events of yesterday take place. Because it's not the church is perfect, because it's not. It's not that the church has got all the stuff we need. It does. It's this. It's that we need the church. We need to stay connected so that we can learn to love each other. So that we can be held accountable to love each other. So that we can be told what's wrong. So that we can be shown how to live that out. So that we can experience it. And you know what? When it's not happening in the church, when we're acting in selfish ways in the church, that needs to be stopped. And we need to work on that together. But it doesn't mean we quit going to church. How do we change our world? We believe in Jesus. We remain connected to Jesus. We must quit listening to the world and its values. 
We need to quit acting like, well, I want some of that too, and running after all the things that the world says is important, because it's not. More stuff is not going to make you happier. This week, Joanne's moving to Lynn House, or she moved to Lynn House, and so this week we've been taking apart her life's worth of stuff in her condo. And it's hard. I've done it with my dad and mom too. It's hard. But you realize everything you own really is just stuff when you do that. So glad she's not dead and we're doing it. I'm glad she's around. We can still love her and do it. But it's still hard because you're tearing down their stuff and getting rid of the, what was their life. Stuff doesn't make us happier. What makes us happier is relationships. And what makes relationships work is loving each other as Christ loved us. So we have to learn to allow Jesus' love to help us love. The closer I get to Jesus, the more I realize his love for me, the more love I have in me to love you and to love others and to begin to care about what goes on in others' lives. How do I do that? First of all, I have to take every thought captive. Because the thoughts in my head oftentimes are selfish thoughts that are saying, hey, get out there and get what you want. They did that to you. You owe it. Go back and retaliate. They stole that. Get angry. And Jesus says, no, love them. If they ask you for your coat, give them your cloak. If they tell you to walk a mile, say, I'll go too. It's a different way of looking at life. Take every thought captive. Get rid of the idea of, being self, of self being most important. Yourself is not the most important. Jesus is most important. Not one other person is any more important than you are. But Jesus is the most important. And when I get my focus and my thoughts on him, then everything else begins to work. Begin to see others for who they are. They're not just objects. They're God's kids. They're his children. I'm going to tell you something. There's not much I will get upset about. But when people, especially when they were little, messed with my kids, I had to deal with that. I had to help them because they're my kids. I had a guy one time, not in this church, but another church, actually kicked one of my sons in anger. And he and I went out behind the church to have a talk. I didn't hit him or anything, but I told him that if he kicked my son again, I would kick him in it. Wherever he kicked him, I'd kick him back. I was upset. He, you know, I wouldn't do that on anything else if it was my son. That's how God treats you. You're his son, his daughter. He loves you too much to ever let us get by with messing with his kids. That's how much he loves you. Don't mess with God's kids. Love his kids. Act. Live out what Paul teaches. It changes our world. But it has to begin with you and me. The first step is not waiting on you to change, and then I will change. It starts with me changing. I, you, I, you. You're the I in this. I, I'm the I in this. Us, each one of us, individually, have to take the first step and do the changing. Or else this will just go on and on in perpetuation. It will continue to go on. If everybody in here says, well, that's good for someone else but not me, then this is hopeless. You have to change. We must surrender to God's way and say yes. We must begin to live out this love for others. 
And don't sit there right now saying, well, I love everybody. I just don't like anybody. I just, I just stay away. No, no. Love is an action. It's going over and finding people who are unlovely and wrapping your arms around them and saying, hey, I'm here for you. It's not looking for the pretty people in the building because that's the easy thing. It's finding everybody in the building and saying, I love you, period. It doesn't matter where you came from, who you are, whether you've been here for the whole time, the whole 102 years or so of our existence. If you were here that long, wow. Or if you just got here, you're acceptable. You're one of God's kids and we love you. You have to live out this love and it won't be natural. It's not something that just happens. You have to work at it. And you have to make a conscious choice to do it even when it feels weird. And you have to go and do it even when it goes fully against the world and what the world tells you is normal. It's countercultural. It really is. And i got to give you the lowdown of this. I'm not going to lie to you. You'll get taken advantage of. You will be taken advantage of if you do this. I promise you that. But it's worth it to change the world. It really is worth it. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. did when he went out and loved the world and began to change. And we need to pick that back up. The truth of love and caring for others instead of using others. It's what Jesus died for. And it's worth doing to please Him. And it's worth it to change us And most important, it's right for us to do it because it's God's command. And if he commanded it, it's because that's what he wanted from his kids. And it's what we're intended for. And it's the best way for us to live. It's a promise. So Father, today, in the midst of all this that's going on around us, on Labor Day weekend, we think about all the injustice and the brokenness in our world. The injustice that workers have suffered at times. The injustice that they've perpetuated at times. Lord, we come to you and first of all, I ask you to forgive me for any part that I've played in taking advantage of others and in using others and in trying to gain my own way by doing that. I ask you to forgive me. And Lord, I stand here in front of this church and Lord, I invite each one of your people right now to pray that same prayer, Lord, that they would ask you to forgive them for anything that they have done that has brought injustice and been uh, selfish and self-centered and and has caused them to use others today. Lord, I I pray that uh, you will forgive me. And then Lord, I pray that you will help me to forgive others who have used me because Lord I know that I know that I have been used and taken advantage of and I have rebelled against that and been angry forgive me Lord for that and help me Lord to forgive those who have done things to me Lord let peace begin right here in this church among these people may we have the peace of God in our midst may we live our lives in such a way that we bring peace to the world that we're going out into. Lord, help us as we go out, first of all, to go to our families and to love them, even though maybe it's hard and difficult because maybe they've used us, taken advantage. But Lord, you said 
that we are to love our families, love our spouse, and, and to care for our spouse, love our children, care for our children, love our mom and dad, even though it's hard. It's very hard at times to, to, to set aside some things, but Lord, help us to love them. Help us as parents to go and to ask for forgiveness where it needs to be done. Help us to get rid of our pride and our ego that stops us from doing the right thing and from starting this from happening. Because Lord, it begins right here in this church. It begins in our families. This does not begin out there. We don't pray for revival out there. Lord, if we want revival in our church, it's going to begin in our hearts. It's going to start right here with me. If we want revival in our nation, it's not going to start on Fox News or, or out somewhere else. It's going to begin right here in Muncie First Church in the families here who say enough's enough. We're not going to live like that. We're going to love. We're going to be different than the world. So Lord, help us right now. And uh, Father, I pray that no matter where we go this week and who we see, that we will love them. That we will intentionally care for them and treat them as human beings, as your children. Even if they aren't lovely. Lord, let's face it, most of us sometimes aren't lovely. But help us to love them anyway. God, you are so good to us. You are so good. And we are so thankful that our identity is Secure in you, not in our stuff or what other people think, but that we are securely identified as your children and as daughters and sons of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that gives us the courage then to be different. So Lord, help us to do that. Thank you, Jesus, for being here with us. Thank you, Lord, for the time together. My prayer is is that you will bless each person that as they go about this, as they begin this in their hearts, that Lord, uh, even when we uh, fail, and there will be times we fail, that we'll come right back to you and ask you for forgiveness and uh, that you will forgive and that we will continue to move forward in this and work to cause your kingdom to come on this earth. We believe in you, Jesus. We really do. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you that you loved us in spite of what we've done. Even when we heaped abuse on you, even when we were unfair, even when we treated you like you were not important, you have loved us. And uh, Lord, thank you. We do love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a great weekend.